I feel like the new American administration has um, signaled a, a 180 degree turnaround on its climate and clean energy policy. Um, but turning those policy aspirations, which I think are widely seen as very laudable here in the United States, turning them into actual um, strategies and implementable policies is the trick. And it's really important to, um, to have a rigorous analysis that is, you know, not just sort of wishful thinking or whatever conventional wisdom says is a thing to do, but actually can be demonstrated to work. And so we're hoping. Welcome that to another episode of Energy Talks, the podcast where we discuss global energy issues and trends with experts from around the world. On this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Jim Williams, a professor at the University of San Francisco and director of the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project for the Sustainable Development Solutions Network, an initiative of the United Nations. Welcome to Energy Talks, Jim. Um, uh, thank you very much, Mark. Nice to talk with you. Well, Jim, why don't we start with an overview of the study and why you and your team uh, decided that uh, one was required? Well, we've been working on decarbonization of the energy system for a long time, going back more than 15 years to California's first global warming laws. Um, and at that time, I was chief scientist for a consulting company in San Francisco called E3. And we were selected to do the first analysis for what became uh, the scoping plan, which is the state's blueprint for how to achieve its climate goals. Um, and after working on California policy um, analysis for several years, we broadened our scope to look at the United States as a whole, and indeed the whole world. And so the, you, you mentioned the Deep Decarbonization Pathways Project. Um, that initiative brought together um, energy experts and modelers from the 16 highest emitting countries around the world, including China and India and the European powers and so forth. Um, and the, the object there was to, um, was to explore how uh, it would be possible to reach what was then the sort of scientific consensus about the minimum that was necessary to do, which was to keep global warming to two degrees Celsius relative to pre-industrial times. And so in 2014 and 2015, that group uh, produced a set of analyses uh, showing in each individual country how that could be done. And um, I was the overall director of that project, but in addition, I was the leader of the US team where we did US study. And so um, in 2014 and 15, we put out two reports called Deep Decarbonization Pathways to the United States and then a companion policy uh, work. Um, and it was, uh, this, this work was influential. It, it uh, I think was one important um, uh, contributor to the Paris Agreement. There is actually a a section of the Paris Agreement that calls on all countries to develop mid-century strategies for deep decarbonization. And I think that was inspired by the work of the DDPP. Um, uh, but what happened after that was a growing scientific consensus that two degrees C was not a sufficient goal. 
and that uh, really uh, to avoid the worst potential damages from climate change, um, the world should, should try very hard to keep uh, warming below 1.5 degrees C. And uh, a widely read report from the IPCC in 2018 highlighted the scientific evidence for that and also uh, produced a lot of analysis showing that to achieve the 1.5 degree limit that uh, global emissions would have to reach net zero by mid-century. And many jurisdictions have adopted that and that is a, a, you know, a stated goal now of the incoming Biden administration. So that was our motivation in doing this analysis. Great. Well, experienced team uh, by the sounds of it. And so let's talk about the four basic strategies that's outlined in your study. And those would be energy efficiency, decarbonized electricity, electrification, and carbon capture. So energy efficiency first. And I guess it gets us back to Amory Lovin's megawatt, the idea that the, the watt that you save is the watt you don't have to produce. It's the most efficient way to reduce energy use. What's, is there any particular uh, approach to energy efficiency in your energy efficiency that you took in your study? Well, yes. I mean, you could see all of our four basic strategies as being essentially physics and, and chemistry. <laughs> and, and if you do your sums right, then you can get to net zero. Um, and so uh, efficiency um, is a combination of what people conventionally think of as efficiency measures, better refrigerators, better air conditioners, and that sort of thing. Uh, but it's also uh, a byproduct of one of the other key steps, which is electrification. Because it turns out that for many important energy using technologies, that um, electricity is a thermodynamically superior mode. So in other words, your, your gasoline powered car only extracts about 20% uh, of the energy in the gasoline to move you forward. Uh, whereas your electric vehicle uh, is, is three or four times more efficient than that. That's just one example. So by electrifying, you also gain substantial energy efficiency benefits. I've often argued in columns that the energy transition we're in now started, you know, 20, late 20th century, I think it, it would be a reasonable date if you had to stick a date on it. And that energy transitions like technology adoption curves, you know, the 21st, 20 years you spend, those technologies are maturing and getting to the point where they're economic and, and ready to displace older technologies. And it seems like the 2020s is that decade, the decade of disruption. And I take a look at the, uh, your four basic strategies and the first three uh, for sure uh, appear that the technologies, many of them are ready for that. Uh, carbon capture would be the exception, I think. Would you agree with that? Well, uh, yes. And fortunately, um, the timing in which carbon capture is needed is not as, um, as um, imminent as it is for the other three strategies of electricity decarbonization, electrification, and energy efficiency. For those things, as you say, we have off-the-shelf technologies that are either already sort of on the downhill slope from market adoption, such as uh, solar and wind, 
uh, or are very near the crest of the hill already, such as electric vehicles uh, and, and electric vehicle batteries. Um, with carbon capture, um, the, the, uh, the, the time when that is going to be needed at a mass scale, uh, according to our analysis, is probably not going to be for at least another 15 years. So in other words, um, if the U.S. Um, does what's needed in the near term, I say over the next 10 years, on um, electrification and on uh, decarbonizing electricity, dealing with some of the more complex issues around fuels and difficult to decarbonize end uses, uh, and, and these are the ones where carbon capture is a, is a necessary technology. Uh, there's 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 10 or 15 years for us to do R&D, uh, to pilot, to have examples to learn from, uh, to see what the market has to say about the most competitive options. So I agree with you, it's not ready off the shelf and uh, uh, right now for many of its applications, but we have time to get there. Well, let's talk about the nine pathways to net zero. And in your study, you've got um, nine scenarios and let's start, we'll go through them one by one and just uh, briefly uh, chat about them. So can we start with the reference case, please? Sure. So you need to have something to compare a scenario to. Um, uh, so uh, our comparison is based on um, a business as usual case that is the long-term energy forecast of the U.S. Department of Energy. And it's probably the best known such case in the world. It's extremely well vetted. It's put together by hundreds of competent experts in the Department of Energy. And so we just said, let's take um, the US DOE annual energy outlook forecast out to mid-century for population and GDP and the energy services that the economy demands and say, can we achieve the same kind of result uh, in terms of energy services? Um, with a decarbonized system. Well, let's talk about um, the second scenario, which is the central one, which is described as the least cost carbon neutral pathway. Can you tell us about that, please? Yes. So for all of our net zero pathways, uh, we follow the same emissions trajectory, which is a straight line from 2020 to net zero in 2050. And so again, this, this uh, uh, is an effort to do apples and apples comparisons. So we built different scenarios that would get to the same objective and compare those to that DOE reference case. Um, and so uh, one of our key questions is how can you most cost effectively decarbonize to the point of reaching net zero by mid-century? And that is what the um, the central case is it has all the options for decarbonization available, whereas in some other cases, we, we take some of the options off the table to see what would happen. Well, let's talk about the third one, which is the central low fossil fuel price. And this one is interesting. I guess when you were in a, a essentially market-based system, uh, and let's say coal, for instance, prices drop really low or natural gases prices are very low and that makes them attractive for you know power generating companies to continue using them 
then what does that mean for the your path uh, decarbonization pathways? I assume that that's the approach you were taking. Yes. So uh, we there there were a couple of kinds of uncertainties that we wanted to look at. I mean, this is a this is a long term perspective right out to mid century getting to that to that goal, and it, obviously there will be things that uh, can't be predicted on the technology development front, on the cost front, you know, on the social preferences front. And so we wanted to do uh, as much as we could to sort of explore those possibilities and see what it would mean for, for this, this goal. Um, so uh, two of our scenarios, the, the, the low fuel price and the low technology costs are basically cost sensitivities around the central case. And one is to explore um, what happens if uh, fossil fuel prices, and that's dominated by oil, oil prices. Uh, so if oil prices uh, in particular are very low going forward, uh, what does our model, which is a cost optimizing model, say is going to happen uh, compared to our central case where we use the mid-range forecast of the DOE, DOE. For the low, we use the low end of their forecast. And what we found was that this scenario ends up having more fossil fuel use than the central case. It has the most of any of our cases, in fact, because um, if the cost of fossil fuels is low enough, then you can afford basically to spend more on getting the carbon out of the system through carbon capture and storage through negative emissions technologies and so forth, if it's cheap enough. Um, even so, it's worth saying that, that in that case with the most fossil fuel, there's still only about 25% of the current level of fossil fuel use. There's no coal at all. It's just simply too costly to try to decarbonize um, uh, coal uses. But um, there are, uh, there's a substantial amount of residual natural gas and, and uh, petroleum use largely for feedstocks. And people who think about this casually probably aren't aware of how much of our, uh, of our energy uh, input actually goes to creating plastics and all kinds of consumer goods. So we still need a source of that. Uh, so that's that outcome. Uh, the, the low technology sort of uh, cost is looking at the, as the other uh, sensitivity and it's saying what if wind and solar and, and vehicle batteries are even cheaper than we uh, than the forecast today say and so um, that uh, that produces a result that goes in the other direction uh, less and less fossil fuel use over time and more and more of the clean technologies well let's talk about the next the fourth uh, scenario, which is low renewables cost. And this is very interesting to me because I interviewed Tony Siba uh, back in November, and he had just released a study about asking the question, what if wind uh, and solar and batteries really disrupt the uh, electricity system in a, in a bigger way than people are expecting because the cost drop, drops so low? You know, what does that do? And, and how does that transform uh, society and economy and the energy systems. And his argument is that it's just like the uh, cheap uh, petroleum and the internal combustion engine did in the 1920s, that cheap electricity and storage will do the same thing in the 2020s. And that 
is, is did you find something similar to that? Uh, what were your re your results in that scenario? I guess we'd say that we already found it in our main case. In other words, the reason the central case is our lowest cost case <clears throat> with about 90% variable wind and solar generation in it is because it has already disrupted that future. And this is using very mainstream cost uh, forecast trajectories for those. Uh, it Even though you have to change the way uh, operations are done in the electricity system a little bit, uh, and and pay, for example, to have more reserve uh, power plants online when, when they're required for, it ends up penciling out. It's still the cheapest to have a very high renewable system. And so the low uh, renewable cost side of uh, that sensitivity produced an incremental change, but we'd already seen sort of the, the disruptive change earlier on. We believe it's already upon us. Um, well, let's talk about the next one, uh, number five, which is the low land scenario. And I'm very curious about this because there's been debates raging on my social media feeds for a while now between opponents of, or skeptics maybe is the best way to call it, or skeptics of renewable energy who say they just take up too much land. You know, too many wind turbines and solar farms take up too much space and that makes them impractical. What did you find? Um, well, I don't give too much credence to that argument, but uh, we did want to, uh, and I'll come back to why if you like, but uh, uh, we, we are aware that there's a history of local opposition to the siting of different kinds of facilities, both wind and solar plants and transmission lines. Um, and in the United States, uh, a major transmission line is something that happens about once a decade. It's not a common phenomenon. Um, and so to um, sort of test what would happen if we could only build half the amount of wind and solar or have half the land area for it available and have half the uh, 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 available transmission, um, uh, we, we built a scenario to test that case. And the result was um, that in some parts of the country, um, nuclear began to be adopted by the model as the next um, uh, available option. And that's especially in areas like the Southeast United States that don't have onshore wind in their region, that don't have very good offshore wind in contrast to say the Northwest or the, or the Northeast. Um, and if they were not able to um, build transmission to the wind belt in the Midwest, um, your, your windy <laughs> uh, uh, birthplace, Markham, um, uh, if they're not able to access that, then their next best bet was to build more nuclear. And so we actually have rising nuclear in those scenarios. So there's a kind of counterintuitive or unexpected um, outcome of restricting land use uh, that, that some people might not, uh, not, might not have thought about. That's interesting. Um, now, what about uh, delayed electrification, the slow consumer uptake of electric technologies? Given that electric seems to be either is or soon will be the low cost option, that would seem to argue for a quicker uptake. Well, uh, I agree, but um, I think the question is what if, right? So we're trying to, to make our analysis robust by exploring things that would tend to make it more difficult to accomplish uh, reaching that zero. 
And so um, one of the, the questions is uh, not so much will there be upfront cost parity between EVs and their ICE counterparts, but when will it happen? And let's say it happens later rather than earlier and we don't reach the benchmark levels of our central case in terms of, of uh, uh, about 50% of new sales being EVs by, by 2030. If we don't reach that, then what happens? Well, you, the, the, you can still stay on the same emissions trajectory, the straight line to, to net zero in mid-century, uh, but you have to do other things. And, and basically all of our cases where we limit our options, you, we found that you could reach the outcome, but you have to use other resources and you end up paying more money. And so in this case, it's quite counterintuitive. You actually have to build more electricity generation, renewable generation for an unexpected reason, which is since you haven't electrified your end uses, you're still using fuels. You can't burn fossil fuels outright. Um, and so you have to provide carbon neutral fuels. And a big source of that is electrically derived fuels that start with electrolysis producing hydrogen from renewable generation. And you actually need to do more of that in a case where people are slower to, you know, to purchase an EV that the next time they need to buy a car. What role does hydrogen as a rule play? Because I didn't see it mentioned very often, but it's kind of all a rage right now. It's the, the it, uh, you know, low carbon uh, fuel. Well, it is important. Um, it's important in all of our scenarios, but it might be a little hidden in terms of its end use because um, uh, something like 10 to 20% of the hydrogen that gets produced ends up being used as hydrogen per se. So for example, in um, heavy duty, long distance freight, we think uh, hydrogen fuel cells are a um, a viable option. And this is something, again, that won't need to be decided until the 2030s. So we have time to, to do R&D and to explore. But, uh, but the, the larger use of hydrogen is as a input to um, the, um, the synthesis of designer hydrocarbons, both for things like jet fuel and for feedstocks. So um, hydrogen is very important um, uh, but more as a, uh, as a feedstock itself, uh, if you will, for, for chemical synthesis than for, for its outright use. And it has a, the, I think probably why you're seeing uh, hydrogen as an it thing is that people have come to realize um, that if you have a high renewable system, there's going to be times when you have excess generation you don't want to just waste that generation. Uh, and hydrogen is a very sort of valuable economic product that you can use with your renewable generation when there's not other demand. Excellent. So what about the low demand scenario, which is number seven? It's a high conservation resulting in reduced demand for energy services. Well, uh, this was to explore um, uh, the position of, of, of many people who say we're just too wasteful of our of, of resources of energy um, we need to change our lifestyle uh, we need to 
walk more, be vegetarians, uh, uh, you know, wear sweaters, turn down the thermostat. And I've got nothing against any of those positions. I think those are, those are uh, you know, great kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, aspirations for a more livable society. But in general, we've tried to maintain the comparability of our studies by saying, we're going to decarbonize the same energy services as the, the, uh, the DOE's long-term forecast, the BAU case. And so we haven't generally done things where people are voluntarily conserving. For one thing, it's very hard to measure that economically. It's not an easy calculation to do. What is the value of you walking to work instead of driving there to you? So we don't generally do that, but we thought we would do one scenario that explores what that would mean. And it's kind of, this is a pretty intuitive one. Um, uh, we need to build less stuff. You don't need as many wind farms and solar farms and transmission lines and EVs and all of that stuff. If people are uh, basically demanding 20 or 30% less, uh, which is what, what we explored, uh, than they do today in comparable situations because they have chosen to conserve. So uh, fly less, drive less, and so forth. Um, it will save land uh, as well as infrastructure costs. We can say that for sure. But it has this challenge of being a behavior change and we don't dive into the question of how possible that is. What about the eighth case, the scenario, the 100% renewable primary energy? Uh, well, um, there are a couple of reasons of getting into that. One is um, there are people who say uh, we should have an all renewable future. Um, we shouldn't use any fossil fuels at all. We shouldn't use nuclear power at all. And so we actually explored a case that did that. It retired all the nuclear plants by mid-century. There's no fossil in it whatsoever. Um, uh, there, there's a, and there's a, the second reason we did it is that there's been something of a raging debate in the scholarly world about can you reliably operate a hundred percent renewable system. So we thought we would take our model and go play in that sandbox a little bit. And what we found is that yes, you can have an energy system that's based a hundred percent on renewables. You can operate an electricity system that's based a hundred percent on renewables. But some of the results were quite counterintuitive. And <clears throat> one uh, maybe obvious one is, is, is that you need more land to build these renewable facilities, more transmission and so forth. What's not so obvious is that you still need carbon capture even in those scenarios because you need carbon to make hydrocarbons with. Unless we're also saying that society is not going to be making, you know, consumer goods that use hydrocarbon feedstocks, you have to have it somewhere. And so even though it's not carbon capture with storage or sequestration, it is still carbon capture with utilization, even in the 100% renewable case. What about the, the last one, which is net negative? Well, um, there are quite a few scientists, the, the most well-known of whom is probably Jim Hansen, the former uh, uh, NASA climate scientist, who have argued in the scholarly literature for quite a long time that even the 1.5 degree uh, limit on global warming above pre-industrial is not sufficient to protect us from the most severe consequences of climate change. And Hansen um, argued that 
um, getting the earth, and we're already, of course, at 1.1 degrees, right? So it's gonna go up before it comes back down. Uh, but he argued basically that to get out of the danger window as fast as possible, that the world needs to get back to a CO2 level of 350 parts per million by the end of this century. It's currently over 410. And so it's considerable drawdown of CO2. And so um, we basically posed the question, uh, how would you make the uh, energy system not a problem, but a part of the solution in terms of an atmospheric drawdown? So not just sort of stabilizing the atmosphere, but actively turning the energy system into a pump that is taking CO2 out. And so, so we built that scenario that reaches negative 500 million tons of CO2 from the US energy and industry uh, system by 2050. And the interesting result for that one is it wasn't much more costly than our central case. The central case was 0.4% of GDP in 2050. The, the minus 500 million ton case was 0.6% of GDP uh, net cost. And so uh, it, you know, from a resource standpoint, it involved basically incrementally more of the stuff that you're doing already to get to net zero, but it's not like a quantum difference. It doesn't require any vast breakthrough technologies. So that's all of the, the scenarios. And since you brought up the issue of cost, I was surprised that the cost of doing any of these pathways uh, is not that high. When I say that high, I mean, you're talking about, you know, percentage of one, you know, one basis point of a, a GDP or maybe a little bit more. Uh, is that, from your point of view, uh, an acceptable cost? Uh, is it a high cost? What's your take? Well, put it in the context of what the U.S. has spent historically for energy. And, and uh, so we're talking about um, the, an energy system that currently costs the U.S. about $1.5 trillion a year. Uh, it's around... 5% of US, 5 or 6% of US GDP. Um, that's at the low end of what it's been historically. If we look out over the past 50 years, it's gotten over 10% during periods of oil price shock. Um, the dependency on, on, uh, on oil in particular historically has been a real problem for the US economy and the global economy. Uh, it, it's very destabilizing as I'm sure, I'm sure you in Canada know. Um, but uh, what we're seeing going forward with the evolution of the U.S. toward being a service economy and an information economy and moving away from um, uh, being an energy intensive economy was that, that uh, the forecast of the DOE is for a long-term continued drop in the share of GDP that goes to energy. And so um, there, the, the, uh, the reference case um, is about 4% uh, of GDP by mid-century. And so our central case adds 0.4% to that. And so that's still below anything that we've historically paid for energy over the last 50 years. And, and so in that context, it seems quite affordable. It's also, I want to point out, it's not like we're talking about taxing people or, you know, you put money in the kitty to do this. It is not that 
felt by the average consumer. It comes out in the cost of your vehicle or the cost of your electricity, which have many other forces acting on them as well. And so from our perspective, you know, the only question that we were really setting out to ask about the economics is, is it affordable? Is the capital available for the necessary investment? And the answers to those are a resounding yes. The economics is not the problem of a, of a low carbon transition. Well, let's talk about the eight actions that need to be taken before 2030 to achieve net carbon, uh, net zero carbon emissions. And the first one is increase solar and wind capacity three and a half times to 500 gigawatts. And given where the U.S. is uh, today, is that achievable? Uh, yes. Uh, so we expect to see incremental improvements in the technology, especially offshore wind. Um, the biggest question of that sort is basically how fast offshore wind costs come down and how rapidly and what scale uh, they can be developed in places like the northeastern United States. Uh, otherwise, I would say the main challenge for solar and wind isn't technological innovation, but institutional innovation. Uh, can we do effective planning and siting of renewables and transmission at a much greater scale and pace than present? Can we develop wholesale electricity markets that provide the right framework for a high renewable system in which almost all the costs are fixed capital costs rather than variable costs, which is the way today's system is designed? Those sorts of questions are, are the issues. Uh, remember, we're not forecasting this, we're backcasting it. We're saying if we need, if we wanna be on this straight line path, this is where we need to get to. We don't see it being a cost barrier. We don't see it being a technical barrier. We see it as being a set of institutional challenges that need to be overcome. What role did, uh, if any, uh, did rooftop solar, microgrids, virtual power plants, those kinds of technologies uh, play in your uh, scenario uh, development? Well, at the scale we work at, which is uh, 16 regions of the United States, um, not very much um, because we're looking for lowest cost options and um, that is generally going to be central station. We assume sort of uh, conventional levels of rooftop in the in the way we estimate uh, energy demand. That that is part of the equation for what's behind the customer's meter. But other than that, these are not uh, high um, distributed generation scenarios. Some of the work our team has done, for example, a recent uh, study of net zero in Massachusetts. We did uh, delve down uh, into that more. I'll just give a shout out to the DG and microgrid folks in, in the sense that it's not really part of our modeling here or our story at this scale, but they've done a lot to sort of popularize solar um, through, you know, programs like uh, California dating back to Governor Schwarzenegger and the million solar roofs, that has done a lot to help transform the market for these things. So they're important developments from a societal standpoint. They're not central to our cases. Let's talk about the second action, which is eliminate most electricity generation from coal. And if I remember correctly, coal is still 25 to 30% of total US power. Is that correct? It is, but it's dropping fast. 
And so this is not a technology question at all. It's, it's about the policies to facilitate the already ongoing transition from coal to gas. And that's, that hasn't really been a policy question. It's just been driven by market dynamics. Gas is cheap um, and it's cleaner. And so it's been, uh, it's been a, a real obvious move in the electricity sector independent of policy. Uh, but the question now is just to bring this to a rapid conclusion because that's the single, the single item that would make the biggest impact on, uh, on emissions in the short term is the, uh, is the retirement. And so this is a question of changing the merit order uh, for electricity dispatch from, from coal generation to gas generation. And that's the policy and regulatory matter, not a technological one. It involves no loss at all of reliability and probably no appreciable added cost. Um, the real question is the social and political economic one, um, how to facilitate an equitable um, transition for the affected communities. That is a big issue in the United States. And, and that is something that the new administration has, has highlighted actually as a priority. And we, you know, we would agree with that from our perspective. Let's talk about number three, the maintain current natural gas generating capacity for reliability. Uh, I, from what I can understand here, gas still plays a fairly big role in your, in your scenarios uh, out to 2050. It does. Um, now we do need to distinguish between capacity and energy here. So what is happening in the electricity system as um, the the penetration of renewables increases. And in all of our cases, the lowest level of wind and solar generation is 80%, and it goes up from there. Um, uh, still on, you know, windless days and sunless days, um, you need uh, ways of balancing the system to maintain reliability. And batteries have a role, but it's really just moving power diurnally over the course of 24 hours. Beyond that is a very uneconomic option. So the most economic option is to maintain thermal generation and specifically gas generation on the system. Um, and the level that's needed, given the, you know, what we calculate for, for, for generation requirements in the future is a fleet that's basically about the same size or even a little bit larger than the one we have in present um, uh, to provide that reliable capacity on the days that your renewables aren't, aren't, aren't providing it. Um, in terms of um, technical challenges, um, uh, I think they're sort of incremental ones. I think uh, the big, um, uh, manufacturers like Siemens and GE and Warsilla and all have been looking at what happens to gas plants that, um, particularly combined cycle plants that are not being operated on a more or less baseload, uh, but, at, 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 but constantly being ramped to accompany the fast ramp of renewable resources over the course of days uh, uh, or hours. And uh, I think we don't really know yet how that's going to affect equipment lifetimes. I'm sure that, that there are engineering solutions for any problems that might creep up that probably haven't been seized yet because there wasn't an economic incentive. But in the world we're looking at, there will be economic incentives and I'm sure those engineering firms are gonna be all over them. Now, the fourth action is, is interesting because 
uh, it's increased zero emission vehicle sales to 50% of new vehicle sales by 2030. I think they're down around two or 3%, maybe 4% in, in the US currently. That's a big ramp up. But at the same time, this may be the one industry that is really ready for the challenge. Agreed. Now, as, as we said earlier, to, to investigate the possibility this wouldn't happen, we did develop a whole scenario around the slower electrification rates. But um, a widely believed figure of merit for, for first cost uh, parity between uh, EVs and ICEs is $100 per kilowatt hour for battery cost. You probably heard that as well. And I'll just put it this way. If, if GM didn't believe that we were gonna reach that point pretty soon, uh, I don't think they would have come out and said uh, that they're going all electric by 2035. There's a lot of confidence in both the battery industry and the EV industry that this is gonna happen. It's just a matter of when. And at that point, this adoption is gonna be on the downhill slope and is gonna take itself, you know, uh, uh, take care of itself. We might need a little policy push to keep building the market until that happens. Listeners can check out my interview with Dr. James Frith, who's the head of uh, store energy storage for Bloomberg New Energy Finance. Uh, that would be in mid-January, where he talked about achieving $100 per kilowatt hour for battery packs uh, by 2023. And by 2030, the cost would be $58. And during the 2030s would likely fall to $20 or $30, which makes EVs significantly lower in cost than internal combustion engine cars. So just a little context there for anyone who hasn't seen that interview yet. Well, let's talk about uh, the action number five, which is increased sales share of building heat pumps. And, and the existing uh, stock of buildings and retrofitting them to use less energy. That, that's a pretty big challenge. It is. Um, so there's a couple challenges with heat pumps. One is, one is cold weather heat pumps. But this is an area where there's been a lot of technology progress in recent years. If you haven't checked out the, uh, the Mitsubishi Hyperheat mini split, um, it, it operates without a backup system down to minus 15 Fahrenheit. And that may not be so impressive to your friends in the, in the Canadian Plains, but uh, for most of the United States, that's, that's viable. Now, there, there's parts of the country that, um, you know, would not be first adopters up in the north uh, of that, or you'd certainly need some kind of backup system to go with it. But this is an ongoing rapid development, and I think it's going to, to continue. But there are other parts of the country where it's already a no-brainer to go with heat pumps, like Florida, where uh, they have AC in the summer, they have electric baseboards in the winter, Florida is actually a winter peaking state from an electricity standpoint, astonishingly. And uh, uh, it is an absolute no-brainer economically that the next time you need to uh, replace either your air conditioning or your baseboard, you just do a heat pump for both purposes. You win already with current economics on that. As you said, the real challenge in getting to something like 50% um, uh, sales of heat pumps uh, 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 by 2030 is the retrofit because that's the majority of the market. We're only building, you know, a few percent of that is for new buildings. The rest of it is for systems that need to be replaced in existing buildings. So I think the area 
of innovation that's going to be needed and the policies to, uh, that are going to be needed are going to be how to match the heat pump technology to many, many different building types and designs. You know, urban skyscrapers, uh, you know, standalone uh, suburban houses, um, legacy heating systems of all different varieties. That's where we need the benefits of scale and standardization. If everything is a custom job, it's not going to work so well. If, if there is a sort of the right kind of uh, support and innovation, then uh, this will become, you know, an easy re easier retrofit process. Let's talk about number six. All new buildings and appliances meet strict energy efficiency goals. Well, what we're, what's needed here isn't uh, anything that's revolutionary. It's, it's more that the best available current technology uh, for a wide range of appliances and building technologies be adopted. So um, uh, it's, it's well known that there has been a uh, adoption challenge for energy efficiency. You, know, you mentioned Amory Lovins and, and the awareness of um, the consumer first price bias, the, uh, the, that is even if it's a lower life cycle cost, people don't wanna pay more upfront for it. Um, there's the, the owner versus renter problem. There's a lot of sort of institutional challenges to energy efficiency. Um, so, so here again, I don't think it's that we need to call for, uh, you know, total building shell retrofits what we do need to plug the leaks we do need you know better windows we do need you know uh certainly uh better appliances and a transition to uh, universal leds and so forth and those are things that that i think um lend themselves to to innovative policy for example um uh, like like Google's uh, dandelion offshoot uh, uh, that that created an on-bill financing option for geothermal heat pumps, but something like on-bill financing, mortgage financing, those kinds of things can really help with the the energy efficiency uptake. Let's talk about number seven, which is research and development for carbon capture, sequestration, and carbon neutral fuels. And I would this one. Carbon neutral fuels in particular caught my eye because I saw a press release from Boeing the other day that said that they had committed to be to using 100% uh, sustainable fuels in I think it was maybe a decade or 15 years something so within your almost within your time frame. It is and and so um, what what we say about um, fuels in our in our paper um, is that there's a lot of a lot of pathways that are possible. Um, they're, they're basically three sources of fuels. One is, is, is uh, biomass energy. Another one is electricity, as I mentioned earlier, where you produce hydrogen and then produce designer fuels from that through processes like Fischer Tropsch. Uh, and uh, the third is fossil fuels themselves. And so there's a complex relationship between fuel production um, uh, electricity production and carbon capture uh, among these. And 
since these are not required in bulk until the middle 2030s at the earliest in order to stay on the straight line reduction path, uh, we have time to sort of figure it out, do our research, do our pilot projects, uh, be able to compare and contrast. Uh, and I think some winners are likely to emerge by that time. I think um, one interesting thing about this is that the, the areas uh, are really a strange mix of old and new. Uh, uh, Fisher trope, uh, piping gases around the country, drilling into salt domes, uh, injecting CO2 into saline aquifer. We've been doing this for decades. It's really a question of cost and scale. And so the fact that e even like the, um, the, amine, the amine capture of, uh, that's used for, for, uh, for carbon capture, these are really old technologies that um, I think if, if there was an economic incentive, we would see you know, um, them, them get a, uh, you know, a, a real boost, uh, but we have time to do that. Let's talk about the final uh, action needed by 2030, which is build electricity transmission and pipelines for carbon dioxide and hydrogen gas. Well, um, I'll focus on the electricity transmission side. Um, this is again, sort of an institutional and policy issue rather than a technology or cost issue. And I'll just put it this way. South Korea has announced uh, a plan to develop uh, 8.5 gigawatts of offshore wind by 2030. And they are already in the process of doing a high voltage offshore backbone in order to link up all of that wind. And in the US, you know, just by contrast, there is a uh, already permitted um, transmission line linking Canadian hydro to New England that the Sierra Club has just sued. And that in our modeling is gonna be very necessary to have that link to be able to do the balancing of offshore wind resources. And so, you know, where do we stand? What, what is the, what is the trade-offs that we're going to make? I think that's the question here about these things. Now, Jim, we've uh, covered a lot of ground in, uh, during this interview. Uh, so let's wrap this up by asking the question, uh, who will be using your, your study and the pathways that you've developed? And my first guess would be policymakers. Well, we, we hope policymakers do. Um, I mean, that's, that's part of our, our purpose here is I, I feel like the new American administration has... Um, signaled a 180 degree turnaround on its climate and clean energy policy. Um, but turning those policy aspirations, which I think are widely seen as very laudable here in the United States, turning them into actual um, strategies and implementable policies is the trick. And it's really important to, um, to have a rigorous analysis that is, you know, not just sort of wishful thinking or whatever conventional wisdom says is a thing to do, but actually can be demonstrated to work. And so we're hoping that that um, that our work will be included, uh, uh, you know, in that category. That this is something that you look at and say, okay, how do we actually need to do this? How do these parts work together? Um, and of course, I think I think um, another potential role for this work is the downscaling because states and municipalities and so forth 
are also interested in developing their policies. So it provides, if you will, a national envelope or set of boundary conditions within which you can sort of look at the scale down, whether it's jurisdictional or for individual industries. Well, Jim, we've come to the end of the interview and I'm gonna put in a little plug for Energy Student Resources. This podcast will be available there with a transcript and links to the study as well as other related stories. And you can also find the podcast on a variety of uh, uh, apps and platforms, including Google Play and Spotify and Apple Play and so on. Jim, thank you very much for this. Really appreciate uh, the the, uh, conversation we've had today. Thank you very much, Martin.